Hi, it's Sarah. Please listen all the way through to the end of this episode to catch the September miles of books. Coach Liz and I talk about two books that she adores that are about winning the mental game. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today in studio by Molly Williams. Hello, Molly. Hello, Sarah. It's so nice to be here. It is great to be here. And if someone heard some snorting, that is Augie, who also have my French bulldog, who is also in the studio. So, yes, he was excited to see his veterinarian. Although he still has a cough, so we got to be working on that. Or yeah, little... maybe we shouldn't be in the little tiny studio. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you are fresh from the great outdoors, loads of fresh air. I am. You know, I'm seven months now post-knee replacement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I did it. I've been on two backpacking trips. So I just did my second one with my youngest daughter, Ellie. Nice. Yes, and we had a great time. So we went Tell to us some Rainier. details about where you went, what you saw, what your modus operandi was. Yeah. So we went to Mount Rainier and we did a loop around what's called Mother Mountain, which is just north of Mount Rainier. Apropos. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And we had a, had a great time. We did a three day backpack Mm -hmm. and beautiful weather and my knee did great. But you know, it's interesting hiking with Ellie, who's 23, but you know, she's a student. She's not really working out and stuff like that. I kicked her ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she hated it. <laughs> Mom. Mom. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I would hike ahead and then I'd stay and, you know, wait for her to catch up. And Ooh. she would just get madder and madder. She's just like, don't, don't, don't stay. Don't wait for me. Just, just go. Just go. I'm like, well, I'm not going to just like hike away from you. I mean, we're here together. So I would hike ahead and then I would like hide. <laughs> Until I saw her coming up the trail and then I'd, then I'd go a little farther and I'd talk to people and I'd say like, okay, so now my, now my daughter's down there. Don't tell her I asked about, but make sure she's okay. (laughs) Just check, but don't tell her. I said, (laughs) she doesn't listen to this, so she'll never know. But, and my other daughters don't, 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 don't don't tell her, don't, don't, don't tell her, don't tell her. But we, but we had it, we had a great time. It was beautiful and I was glad to be out and I'm glad that my knee is so much better. That's great. Yeah. What, what was your daily mileage? And you would go from, you would pick up, pack up camp mm-hmm. and go set another camp that night? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's backpacking. Yeah. yeah. That's what, well, versus, what happens. Because the other time yeah, yes, you right. had a home base yes, and then you would take day trips out from yes, there. Yes, that is, that is true. I shouldn't be flippant. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't a lot of mileage, but Mount Rainier is really steep. So our first day was seven miles. Our second day was like six and a half and our last day was six and a half. But Every day we had about 2,000 feet of elevation wow. on the last was about 3,000. That's a lot of not, oh, not oh, a yeah. super long distance. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Geez. So everything is like up and down and nothing is in a straight line. The rivers, since they're glacial rivers, are always changing. And so they're always wiping out the trail mm. and they'll put logs in for you to kind of go across different ditches and over rivers and stuff like that. And it's like a obstacle course of, you know, dissecting logs to get across mm. and up and down. And so wow. nothing um, is, is very quick, but it's quite beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So that was my end of summer hurrah. Okay. Well, my end of summer hurrah with my I know. daughter. You had a big one. Yes. Yeah, so we were both in Washington State. Uh, yeah. So my husband, Jack, and I and my older daughter, Phoebe, took Daphne, my younger daughter, my girl twin, up to Seattle University to get her settled into her freshman dorm and to say goodbye. Aww. 
And I understand that some parents have been known to have trouble saying goodbye. So universities are kind of orchestrating this moment. Oh, really? Yes. I've heard this from a couple of different people who I've told this story that I'm about to tell. They've said, oh yeah, I've heard other schools doing that. So anyway, we were in kind of a family and supporter welcome orientation that we knew would end with the students going off with their orientation groups mm-hmm. and that that's where we'd say goodbye. And leave? And leave. And not take her out for dinner that night? Correct. Oh. But so I knew that in my head, but I didn't envision what it would be like. So let me paint you a picture with words. Yes. In a very stiflingly warm basketball arena Mm -hmm. that has so many people, I was one level below kind of panicky, good, like Mm -hmm. COVID, it's too warm. I am feeling anxious because of the situation and because I'm, you know, postmenopausal. So being in in closed spaces isn't great for me. And if the earthquake comes, we're all going down. (laughs) Oh, thought of that one. (laughs) Of course, thought of that one. There is no way I'm getting to an exit if if the big one hits. And even if I could make it to an exit, there's so many people, well, I'll just be trampled to death Mm -hmm. right there. Okay. So, okay. So those are the thoughts that are running through my mind. Yeah. So then, so they, and it, it was a really lovely welcome. I really love the vibe of Seattle University. Very progressive, very inclusive, welcoming, all the great adjectives that you mm-hmm. want. And so they say, okay, well, this is, you know, this is the time to say goodbye to your student. And we're going to put on a song. And, you know, during that song, that's when you're going to say, okay, so what do they put on? But Long Live by Taylor Swift, Aww. thus forever ruining that song for this devoted Swifty. <laughs> and so there's barely enough room to turn to manage a hug with your student, Mm -hmm. you know, and then of course you want to get the group hug. So imagine that you're in the Barbie movie, the very day it opens and having in that close proximity, turn and say goodbye to your loved one. Mm. (laughs) It's just like, really? We couldn't orchestrate this any better. So then they say, okay, orientation groups one through five head out to that exit six through 10 that so there goes Daphne well it's so crowded that they can barely make any progress so you've said goodbye but they're still only about 20 <laughs> feet from you so, so it's it's like so you've got more time it's like your you know loved one being shipped off to a life sentence on a very slow moving train yeah yeah <laughs> so so you know they asked that the parents and supporters all stay in their seats and let the students try to leave well it's just so crowded that it took forever for the students to get out so finally i'm like come on jack we got to leave because i was just getting antsy and mm-hmm. overheated so then we go out well of course there are all the student groups because it's so crowded there's still no place to move because you're in a city and they're waiting to cross at lights mm. so, so you saw her again saw her again <laughs> So because did of you keep, keep taking pictures? Like even with time. the Taylor Swift Bye. movement, I did the, you know, made a heart with my two hands and she was holding something. So she made half a heart. And, you know, I told her I loved her again. And, yeah. and, and so I definitely have that very much in yeah. my mind because I wasn't going to take a picture. So I took a picture with my mind, uh-huh. but still, and I have listened to long live several times since then. And sometimes it makes me smile and sometimes it makes me cry. Aww. Well, how'd she song. do? Did she cry? Or she just embarrassed? She was, no, she was anxious. She admitted that she was anxious, even from the day or two before. Natural, yeah. And it was great to have Phoebe there because the room Mm. was, her dorm room 
very small. Mm-hmm. And so to have four of us in the room, thankfully we got there before the roommate, but I was very much aware that the roommate would be getting there at any point. So I was like, we got to do this unpacking thing really quickly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Daphne was a little bit spinning out, not being, you know, we were like, well, what do you want hang, you know, hung up? What should we put into drawers? But da, 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 da. And she was, she was being indecisive, which is very much unlike Daphne. Mm-hmm. And so Phoebe really took action. Phoebe likes to organize things. So I was like, hey, you know what, Jack, let's go in the student lounge, which is just a couple doors down mm-hmm. and let the gals take That's care of That's a really this. good idea. Let her have some sister time. and Right. Yeah. And have a little more space. Yeah. The dorm room again was too warm. And then sure enough, the roommate and her parents showed up mm-hmm. and that's when it was, it was like, Whoa. Wait, and then she, yeah. Then she's got a chance to say hello to her. Yeah. And also then Phoebe probably have more of an opportunity to go up and visit her than you will just because, you know, she's a young person and has a little bit more latitude. Yeah. And schedule. she probably, I mean, I'm sure she wants to see you, but she probably kind of would rather like hang out with her sister. Right. You, know, you know what I mean? Right. You know, right, as a college right. freshman. Yeah. So that's really, that's really nice. It was so it really like nice. She did and pretty well. She did really well. And then Phoebe was such such a great asset to have there because she was really supportive to Daphne. She and Daphne have spent Mm -hmm. a lot of time together, particularly since their brother left to go to college. And then Phoebe was also very supportive of me. And so when Daphne was only like five people away, as she's trying to get out of this crowded auditorium or arena that she, Phoebe and I held hands and then Phoebe puts her hand on top of mine and then I put my other hand on top of her. So we kind of had this mom-daughter hand sandwich. Aww, yeah, it was really nice. nice. Yeah, she, Phoebe's a very compassionate person and rapidly becoming more so in the past year mm-hmm. or so. She's circled back around to being an adult. She, they she, do that, right? She has. She has. It's really lovely. Yeah. It's really lovely. Yeah. You go through that period of time where they hate you and then they, <laughs> well, hopefully they start to love you again. And how's she doing now a week out? She having a good so, time? Daphne, she's only, today's the first day of classes. She's been there half a week and we haven't talked on the phone yet. Not, and no. any news from John? Things going well? Barely anything. So things are going well. Yeah, he's, yeah. <laughs> I said previously on the podcast, he's taken to college like a fish to water. I, yeah. I did get one video of him with three other, I assume, musical theater BFA students. It was t- the video was taken at 1 a.m. They are in a dance studio all around a piano mm-hmm. and they are improvising a song from Hamilton. Oh my gosh. I mean, live in the life. That's what they do at 1 a.m. on a Friday. <laughs> I'm going to live forever. Good for them. That's so awesome. It is great. It is great. So my kids have, I believe, gotten nicely settled and that that makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Well, on today's show, we are talking about women and alcohol, and we are talking to two women with new books out on the topic or just coming out soon during this National Recovery Month. And I just thought it was a good time to take a step back and look at how alcohol might be affecting our lives and our well-being. Our first guest is Celeste Vaughn, a certified life and recovery coach and a founding host of Sober Mom Squad, an online community for non-drinking moms. A mom of two school-aged sons, Celeste is the author of the just-released book, It's Not About the Wine, The Loaded Truth Behind the Mommy Wine Culture. It looks at why moms turn to alcohol to deal with the demands of motherhood. Thank you for joining us, Celeste, and congrats on your book. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Molly. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So let's ease into things. What do you do for exercise, Celeste? So right now, I am going to Orange Theory Mm. during the week. And on weekends, I am training for a marathon. Oh, wow. look at that. I didn't know that was part of the package. I love it. What race? I am going to be running the Marine Corps Marathon at the end of October. 
Oh, coming right up. Fantastic. And how's your training going? Great. I'll be doing 18 on Sunday. So wish me luck. Mm -hmm. Yes, most definitely. And uh, is this marathon number one, number what? Number five. Oh, wow. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. I'm excited. It feels good. It'll be a new marathon for me Mm -hmm. and I'll be running it with two friends. So um, it's also a social gathering for me as well. Nice. Do you train with them or meet up with them at the race? I train with them as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, perfect. you going to try to stick together or each run your own race? We are probably going to have to split up. Mm-hmm. We train together, but we're all just kind of working with different things and different bodies right now. So we, we, we play it real cool. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're not here to win awards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just the participation one. Yeah, from the handsome Marine. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's really just for fun. It's not for time or anything. But when you're in the heat of the moment and the excitement of the run, like people are going to have different energy levels. So we just kind of do our own thing at certain points. Well, it's good you all acknowledge that ahead of time. So there aren't hurt feelings or disappointment on race day. Yeah. Yeah. We all ran together the St. George marathon a couple of years ago. And that's what happened. We stepped together the first couple of miles. And then one of the women was like, you know what? I am feeling ready to go. And she took off and she just had a blast. And me and my sister-in-law, we just uh, kind of hung back a little bit, but it was just, it was great. It was just a fun experience. Mm. And also that would be, I assume a much less crowded race than Marine Corps. So absolutely, I, th- I think sticking together with a group is tough in a bigger race. Yeah, it was definitely a more relaxed atmosphere. The Marine Corps is going to be, you know, the corrals and everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, I doubt marathon running is your career. So do you have something else that you do for money or is it just marathoning? <laughs> Yeah, not yet. (laughs) Okay, next next year, huh? If I can pull another hour or two off my marathon time, maybe we can talk. (laughs) Um, In the meantime, I am a writer. I write on a sub stack for social media, and then I just uh, wrote my first book. So writing really is my career coming off about 20 years of being a person in corporate marketing. Uh, But I finally took that leap of faith last year where I said, I'm going to pursue writing full time. Well, good for you. Well, I don't imagine that you write a book about wine culture without having some experience with wine. Oh, yeah, I have a lot of experience (laughs) with wine and mommy wine culture. (laughs) Me me too. So uh, what's what's your relationship with alcohol? Yeah, I would say I was a gray area drinker for a long time. And I really leaned on this mommy needs wine message to justify what was, what was increasingly becoming a problem for me. My relationship with alcohol changed in motherhood where kind of that line between want and need started to get smaller and thinner mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. And as my socializing kind of decreased in motherhood, as it generally does, mm-hmm. My desire to continue drinking, even though I was home, not particularly doing anything, certainly not socializing, just picked up and it felt okay. And it felt just fine because this is what mothers do. That's the message I kind of just planted in my head for several years, Uh, even as my drinking increased and as my hangovers got worse. 
it became a problem. In fact, I would say alcohol, my drinking became more of a problem than a solution. And that was the point where I realized I was sabotaging myself. I was certainly sabotaging the way I wanted to present myself as a mom. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't being the mother that I had wanted to be. In fact, I had wanted to be a mom my whole life. And here I was feeling like I was just phoning it in Mm. till five o'clock till I could Mm -hmm. get my next drink. And that really hit me and hurt me in all the ways. Um, So I quit drinking five and a half years ago and really found a lot of freedom in sobriety in a way that I had never expected. I kind of thought I would be stuck living the rest of my life in deprivation. And it's really been the opposite experience. I have found so much freedom and joy and liberation in my sobriety that it feels very much like a redemption story. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And how did you go about stopping drinking? So I think looking back on it now, this would be called spontaneous sobriety, where mm. you just stop and you figure it out as you go. At the time, I didn't know there was a name for what I was doing. All I knew was I did not want to drink anymore, even though I did, right? It's that, you know, that awkward feeling where it's like, I I need to stop and I don't want to stop. Uh, so I have to stop. Mm. And so I stopped. I had a panic attack one December morning in 2017. And that really put the oomph on this has to happen right now. Uh, so I quit cold turkey and I just figured it out as I went. I did not attend meetings in the beginning. I only started researching and reading books and understanding how recovery works in the months after. But uh, in those early days, it was more about kind of the immediacy of I have to just stop and I'll figure this out as I go. Hmm. And how old were your sons at that point? They were one in three when Ooh. I quit. Oh, pretty little. Wow. Yeah. Was it was it hard? I mean, did you the this the day that you stopped, did you get to five o'clock and were you like really struggling for that drink? Oh yeah. Absolutely. It was extremely hard. And I made it harder on myself by doing it the way I did it. You know, if I could go back and make changes, I absolutely would. I would have found a recovery community. I would have found an accountability partner. I would have started reading the Quitlet and listening to the podcasts from day one. But I just didn't even know that that community or community like that was out there. Mm -hmm. All I had ever heard of was AA and I didn't identify as an alcoholic. So I felt like I was on this journey alone. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until I leaned into my sobriety and started sharing my sober journey that I realized a lot of people have similar relationships with alcohol and have quit for similar reasons. And I've met them on this journey. I now do have a community uh, where I get support. I just feel like everything about my recovery journey has grown the more I've leaned into it. Mm. So do you do AA now or do you still feel like you have a different community that's more in line with your drinking? Right. When the pandemic hit, my friend Emily started the Sober Mom Squad. Hmm. And I immediately jumped on that as a host and as a participant. And I'm still part of that community now. And I host several meetings a week. 
it's definitely where I go for my support too. Yeah. Tell us more about Sober Mom Squad. It, it sounds very unique. Yeah. So Emily started this right in March of 2020 when we saw what was happening for mothers and the country itself, when everything shut down overnight, when it seemed like the only stores that were open were hospitals and liquor stores. Mm. I mean, it just felt like we were in this place where anybody in recovery was like, oh God, how am I going to get through this? I certainly felt that way. And Emily put out this call to action on her Instagram. And I was friends with her on Instagram at that point. And she says, who wants to help support mothers in recovery right now? And I raised my virtual hand and I said, count me in. And she started hosting these weekly meetings for anyone who identified as a mother and was exploring sobriety or interested in sobriety. And every week we just started connecting and you know, we got mothers at all stages of this. Some were 20 years in recovery. Some were on their day one. And we all just kind of connected and talked about how hard and stressful this time was, especially. But how do we do this sober? How do we get through it sober? And we really just lifted each other up. So in the fall of that year, you know, with the popularity of this community and the demand, Emily kind of built it into an actual full-on thing with an app, with three to five meetings a day. I mean, just all wow. this support and access. And it's really the only community of its kind that's specifically for mothers. Mm. Mm. Wow. All right. So, so speaking of community, we got some questions from our Facebook group that we're going to sprinkle into our conversation, including this one from Victoria that just broke my heart. She asked, how can sober moms make friends? I don't drink and haven't for years. And I've made exactly one friend in my state. I've tried making friends at my son's school, at church and at work and between scheduling and the drinkers never being interested in a sober activity. It's been horribly lonely. Well, I feel this one. Mm-hmm. You know, in my mm-hmm. early sobriety, I thought that being a non-drinker was something to hide from the other moms. I was so afraid that they would judge me. You know, mommy wine culture is so rampant in the mom gatherings, in the socializing, that I worried that people would think that I was no fun or that I, you know, was not somebody that they would want to develop a friendship with. For this reason and this reason alone, I have since learned that most people genuinely do not care that I don't drink. <laughs> 90% of you know the people I've connected with as a mother or in the mom circles do not care. And the 10% who do aren't people I would want to be friends with anyway. So I would say that the longer I am confident and affirmed in my sobriety, the less it even matters. Mm when I'm developing these connections, but also having sober friends is really important. And it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody in your direct vicinity, you know, somebody that you're meeting for coffee with. You know, I think the virtual community that we have through Instagram or Facebook is a great way to meet other sober moms. It's certainly how I met some of my best friends in sobriety. Sober Mom Squad has a community support where you can actually meet other people in your geography as oh. you 
But I, I have to imagine that that is something you can find anywhere. You know, I bet if you go onto Facebook and look for a group of sober moms in your city, there's probably a group. And if not, you could create one. Other sober moms are looking for that connection too. And it's not just to the person who asked the question. I probably in my real life, you know, in my world around me, I probably have only one or two people that I'm aware of that are also sober. Hmm. It's a pretty rare thing. So while I would say that don't let that keep you from going out there and socializing anyway, finding that connection with other sober moms virtually is valid. And in fact, a wonderful way to connect with others. Hmm. And have you found you being a runner and a marathon runner, do you find that running has been a way to meet other sober moms or sober friends? Virtually, yes. Hmm. In my real life, I don't think I know a single person in my day-to-day who is sober and a runner, Hmm. which is you know, an interesting thing to discuss because I think the running community can also have problematic messaging around alcohol too. How many times have I been handed a beer Mm -hmm. at the end of a marathon, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or a half marathon or a 5k. Uh, There is kind of this association of alcohol with running that can be triggering if you're Mm -hmm. like me and in recovery. So I, I do know people virtually who are sober mom runners, mm-hmm. uh, but not in my day to day. No, mm-hmm. that's very interesting because when when Victoria posted this question on our Facebook page, first of all, I was really just warmed to the bottom of my heart by people who were like, "I'm your friend now. I now you have me. You know, reach out to me." Aww. But then also other people were like, "You know, running communities look for mm-hmm. in the running communities." And my first thought was take a pickleball, my other athletic passion, because I found it a very easy way to make friends. And I don't get a sense that they care whether I drink or don't drink. So I'm saddened that you have found that there's not many sober people in the running community. And I think you need to be cognizant of what kind of group it is when you're going into it, or you could put yourself in an uncomfortable position where Mm. everybody's grabbing a drink after. But Mm -hmm. I think if you time it, like if you're in a runner group on a Sunday morning, (laughs) it's going to be less likely that everyone's going to pop open beers Mm -hmm. at the end of a run. So uh, I think there are ways that you could still participate in those communities without Mm -hmm. fearing putting yourself in a really awkward position. Mm-hmm. Just kind of set yourself up for success. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. true, so many social activities do take place with alcohol. I always, I, and I find that an issue for myself. I do like to drink, maybe sometimes a little too much. So this is a very interesting podcast for me and, you know, just being frank about it. But um, having something like pickleball where you can meet somebody that's social I mean, that's, I think what we're all looking for, because like, what do you do when you meet somebody? Oh, you want to go out for a drink? Well, mm-hmm. now I don't yeah. want to have a drink. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't really want to go out for dessert. I don't really want to go out for coffee. So then what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you you can run with somebody, but what if they don't run? But pickleball, that's good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a good one. I, I take a walk with people yes. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of drinking, <laughs> what do you think is problem drinking and drinking too much, Celeste? versus social drinking? Or is there really a difference? 
You know, it's such a personal question. Yeah. There's not even like, you'll, you can't go online and look up a definitive number of drinks that constitutes an alcoholic. And we all know no alcohol is good for you. I mean, that's what they're right. saying. Like, you know, it's, I like it. It makes me feel good, but it's not really, it's not doing anything positive for you. Right. From a health standpoint, we now recognize, or the CDC now recognizes recognizes that no amount of alcohol is safe. Right. But what is that line between you're a moderate drinker or an occasional drinker versus having a drinking problem? You know, I think it's going to look different for everyone as will the amount of drinks. What I love about being a sober person in the year 2023 is we have the language to speak to the spectrum that is people's relationship with alcohol. You know, they've got words now that didn't exist 10 years ago, like being sober curious, <laughs> a gray area drinker. And that's definitely where I see myself um, because I did not believe or identify as an alcoholic. But what was the middle ground there? And now I can identify it as a gray area drinker, which is somewhere between occasional or even moderate drinker and can't function without alcohol. Mm -hmm. So it's that gray space. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of people, in fact, I saw a recent stat that said up to 80% of drinkers in the US identify themselves as gray area drinkers. Wow. So it's so much easier, I think, for us to kind of understand our relationship with alcohol when we have more of this language to help us understand it better. And it's not so black and white. Like there's <laughs> a huge gray middle in the area where people are in between the, I like my occasional drink and I sometimes get blackout drunk. You know, mm -hmm. what is that middle space? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Celeste, do you feel like you could ever go back to drinking sometimes or do you just feel like it just has got to be a nothing? That's so funny. Cause I was just on a recovery meeting and we were having this same discussion. Yeah. You know, one of the things I I love reading Quitlet from other authors. And one of my favorite authors is Laura McCowan. And she has this statement where she says, it's not fair that this is your thing, but this is your thing. Mm. And for me, I know with conviction, alcohol is my thing. And it will always be my thing. You know, alcoholism and addiction is progressive. It never goes down. And you hear this from, I hear this in meetings every meeting that somebody says, I thought I was better. I thought my relationship with alcohol would look different this time because I had whatever, two years of sobriety, th mm -hmm. 10 years of sobriety, whatever it is. And they picked right back up where they left. And I know that is always going to be how it is for me because that's the way I always drank. Mm -hmm. You know, I never just wanted one drink. Uh, even now, if somebody told me I could have a drink and it wouldn't count, I could keep my sober date and uh, it would just be a cheat. That doesn't even sound interesting to me because I was always like, give me three drinks or don't give me anything because one drink was a tease. Mm. So that's how I know with certainty that I can never go back to drinking and ever find satisfaction in it. Mm -hmm. mm. Celeste, listening to you talk, I'm just so amazed and, and proud to be able to hear you talk so openly about your relationship with alcohol. And I, and I realize you're you know, promoting your book and, and, and that type of thing, but that was it hard to 
open up so much. And because I think people listening might be thinking, wow, I'm relating a lot to what Celeste says, but I couldn't open my mouth and say the words that she's saying. Yeah, I think that stems from two things. And the first was, I I started my journey with a lot of shame and guilt and fear of how people would judge me based on this turn of events in my life. And I kept it a secret for the first year. And I didn't tell anyone except my husband and my mom. And otherwise, I tried to fool people. I would walk around holding things that look like oh. alcohol drinks. Wow. Like I I really was deathly afraid of anybody knowing. I thought that that would be the worst thing anybody could find out was knowing that I had a drinking problem. And it wasn't until I reached a year sober that that shifted. That bur- I, I kind of had a shift in my brain that was like, this is actually really freaking cool. <laughs> like this is kind of an amazing thing you're doing. And the positive benefits that are happening in your life and and the people and my people around me, my family's life, I kind of wanted to share it. And so I, I put a message out. Um, I was already a mom blogger at that point, and I put a message out that, hey, you guys don't know this about me, but I'm actually one year sober. And you probably didn't think I had a drinking problem. Well, I hit it really well. <laughs> and I want you to know that I've been alcohol free for one year and I feel amazing. And um, I'm going to keep going. Like, I, I just, mm. I never want to go back to where I was a year ago today thinking my world was crumbling. Mm. And people were so grateful and gracious and accepting and lovely. And it made me think this isn't the end of the world. Like this is, this is actually something really cool and important message that maybe I can uplift people through this message and through this journey if I talk about it openly. And so I did. And that's really where I started sharing it publicly. Mm. But I think the other reason I do feel like it's so important for me to be vocal is because I grew up in a home of addiction where it was our secret to carry for the whole family. You know, my father was an alcoholic and, um, that was our family secret and that was our burden to bear. And it was something that was steeped in a lot of shame. And I never want to feel that way again. Like, I feel like I I want to be so loud and vocal about this because addiction thrives in secrets and it dies when we are out loud. Oh, Mm. that's very good. Mm. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for talking with us. I just wish you all the best with your book. It, it's These are messages that need to get out to, to people. So thank you, not just moms, it needs to get out to all sorts of people. So thank you so much for, for speaking out and for telling your truth. Your frankness, yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to take a break to hear from the brands that let us bring you this free content. Please support them like they support us. We'll be back shortly with our next guest. Okay. As promised, our next guest is Amanda Kuda, the author of a book that debuts next month. It's called Unbottled Potential, Break Up with Alcohol and Break Through to Your Best Life. Amanda is a personal development coach. And since 2017, she's been, quote, electively sober. And we'll get to what that term means as it was new to me. 
Amanda is the host of a podcast with the same name as her book, The Unbottled Potential Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, Amanda. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Sarah and Molly. Yeah, great to have you. So what do you do for fitness, Amanda? Well, I am a strength trainer. I oh. love a str- I love strength training. Not I don't go to extremes, but I love slow and controlled movements. I also love dance and yoga. Anything that is slow and methodical is my is really my jam. Good hmm. for you. I just did my strength workout this morning. Trying yes, to me as well. Lift heavy, lift slow, sweat a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, that's the move. So, what's your professional background then? Like, how did you get into strength training? So I have always been someone who loves movement. When I was a little girl, I was a dancer and that's all I wanted to do and wanted to be. And then as I got older, um, you know, I actually trained to be a dancer um, for a couple of years in college, but it was pretty clear that my very small town roots hadn't quite equipped me to have a long standing career in that area. So switched directions and pursued a career in communication and marketing. Hmm. And, you know, I've done tons of, I've always been someone who really values movement. And I actually just hit my 1000th class at the gym that I've been going to for the past six and a half years. And that was quite a fun accomplishment. And, you know, I just kind of find something that feels like home and feels good for my body and try to stick with it and then incorporate other things that feel good as well. What kind of dancer were you? I am typically like a more jazz and hip hop. I did train in ballet, but again, coming from a very small town, didn't yeah. get like quite the, quite the technical background training, but I love, you know, now I'll take hip hop dance classes and that's one of my favorite ways to get cardio and just have a joyful time. Oh, good for you. That's hard. Mm. It I, is. I, it I, is. I try to do hip hop. I and, would give uh, anything to be good at hip hop dancing. Yeah, I have I not. It's fun to try though. Do you teach a hip hop class? You know, I don't teach, but I try to take a class as as often as I can. And, you know, I don't know if y'all are following the social media hype, but I think if NSYNC goes back on the road that I will try out to be a back out dan- backup dancer. Like that just feels like my teenage dreams coming true. <laughs> you should go for it. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, let's shift gears here and tell us about your relationship with alcohol. And is it true that dry January launched you into permanently not drinking alcohol? And in your answer, if you could tell us what constitutes elective sobriety. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for asking that. You know, my relationship with alcohol is rather insignificant, I would say. I have a very kind of run of the mill, same story as a lot of people relationship with alcohol, and my relationship with alcohol started as a way to fit in as kind of an ugly duckling, awkward kid who didn't quite feel like I thought the same way and acted the same way as some of the other peers around me in my adolescent years, as you know, many of us worry about. I realized that a lot of my friends had stopped going to sleepovers and started instead going to these basement parties on the weekends Mm. or field parties or wherever they were happening in the Midwest where I lived. And even though I, I remember thinking that drinking and partying was kind of lowbrow or or something that the mean popular kids did. <laughs> I also desperately wanted to fit in. And I saw this as an outlet for me to do that, to not only feel more comfortable, but to let loose and also feel as someone who didn't quite feel I was allowed to go to some of these 
type of parties to take off some of that edge so that I could feel like I was even allowed to be there, as sad as that sounds. And I kind of, you know, when you start doing something so young and you get an idea cemented in your head that a specific activity is the precursor to you being liked, cool, and popular, Mm. it really is something that carried over into my adulthood. And so throughout my college years and my 20s, And into my early 30s, I was just a run-of-the-mill party girl, you know? I was going out on the weekend, working hard during the week, going out on the weekends, and that there was nothing abnormal about that relationship with alcohol, you know, albeit it was pretty heavy, but it was about the same as everyone else around me. And so around the time I got to, um, it was right around the time I turned 28, I started feeling that there was something more. I started having this kind of existential crisis and having this question internally that was, is this all there is? Is this really going to get me anywhere? Is this really the life I'm supposed to live? You know, just Mm. wondering if the job I was at and all of these things were all that I had, all that I could live up to. Like, if was I really living out my potential? And at the end of the day, the answer was no. Well, I'm intrigued that the, I I was never the big party girl in terms of going out with a whole group of friends. I mean, I, I, when I went to college, I'm old enough so that we were grandfathered in to be able to drink in our freshman year because of the age. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I ended up giving up drinking in halfway through my freshman year because I got really into rowing and I mm. sort of had this whole, my body is a temple type thing. So I stopped smoking weed, stopped drinking and just really got into athletics. Not so. me. tell us more yeah right and it's still it's a drink on the weekends you know friday comes and i feel like i deserve it you know i want it i think about it on the way home i'm ready to have my drink but but certainly when i was in college i drank every weekend my uh now husband then boyfriend was in a band so we'd be up all night you know Mm. till four in the morning and out partying and then you know sleep Mm. in sleep it off and then get up and do it again the next night yeah so I do feel it's hard. It's scary and hard to not drink because that is my social interaction. So mm-hmm. what happens if we go out and I don't have a drink? I'm going to be bored as hell. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's the major yeah. fear. Yeah, and tired. Oh, absolutely. And when I started asking myself this question, like, what am I doing wrong? And I, I significantly had this feeling that there was something that I was doing wrong and not wrong from like, a moral standing place, but just, it felt like I was doing all the right things. I was working my tush off. I got a master's degree. You know, I'd gotten a great job at a company that was very well sought after. And I had, I had bought a house and was rubbing elbows on the social scene. And yet I felt so unfulfilled, so unsatisfied. And I wasn't depressed necessarily, but I also wasn't happy. And I just couldn't shake this feeling that there was something more available to me. And I started down a path of personal and spiritual development, thanks to kind of an unsuspecting mentor that came into my life. And I kept kind of running, quote unquote, running the numbers of what all of these things I had added into my life, all of these positive behaviors, like fitness, working out, you know, um, being a little more mindful about what I was eating, journaling, meditation, you know, I was going to wellness retreats here and there. And yet nothing that I added in seemed to do the trick. So finally, I asked myself, what if this isn't an equation about addition? 
what if it's equation about subtraction? Mm. And the one glaring thing that I could see that maybe could be subtracted from the equation was alcohol. And let me tell you what, I tried to run the math several times because I did not (laughs) want that to be the answer. Mm -hmm. And every time I returned to that answer that your life would be instrumentally better without alcohol. And being a little stubborn, I just thought, well, surely you mean just cut back. This isn't pure subtraction. This is just take a little off the top, right? So I tried to cut back for a long time. I tried to moderate and that did not work well for me, which we can discuss in a little more detail. Just wasn't super successful. So at the end of the day, um, I decided that I wanted to just take a break and it was coming up on January and I'd heard about this kind of newer concept called dry January where people were taking the first month of the year off alcohol and it seemed to make sense to me. So I thought, okay, this is great because there's not a lot going on. It seems like some other people, some of my other friends are doing this and I'm going to make this choice as well. I'm going to as you asked Sarah, elect to take alcohol out of the picture, void of a rock bottom, void of an addiction, void of checking any of the boxes for needing to have like recovery or a sponsor or any of those things that are very, very amazing resources, but they just didn't resonate with me. I just knew that this was a choice that I wanted to make and, or I kind of wanted to make. And so I started down this 30 day path. And by the time I got to the end, I had the wherewithal to realize that I was feeling good, but I was pretty sure I could feel better and I wanted to keep feeling good. So I went 30 more days and 30 more days Mm. and then it was six months and then it was a year and I haven't drank in almost seven years and it feels really, really amazing. Yeah. Wow. That's great. So what do you say to people like me who feel like a social event is going to be scary. Okay. Here's my scenario here. As I was thinking about this coming over, cause I am sober curious and, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd love to just take a little off the top, but I don't know. Like it, one turns into four. Yep. If maybe you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Okay. So say I'm having people over to my house. So my husband's mm-hmm. friends are coming over to the house and we're going to play some games. Well, I mean, I like my husband's friends are nice people, but they're not really my friends. Right. You know, uh-huh. so, so it's a, already, it's a little bit like, oh, I'm going to have to find things to talk about and, you know, keep, you know, and I also like to go to bed at eight o'clock. Now I got to stay up till 11 and who knows when they'll leave. What if they didn't leave till 1130? You know? Okay. So I'm looking at that night and I'm thinking I can't get through this without a drink. I'm not going to be any fun. I'm not going to have fun. I'm not going to be able to stay awake. I don't want to do it. What do I do? Oh, that is a good one. And that is one I know. And you're hitting all the points. The, I don't know these people very well. I, how am I going to basically withstand the social situation? And also, how am I going to keep my stamina? Because reality is that what alcohol does is numb us to things that are dull and boring and don't stimulate us. And it also numbs us through our natural sensations and our natural body cues of, I'm tired. I'm, you know, I'm not enjoying this and I want to go to bed. Man, you just said something that I've never heard anybody say that is so true. Yeah. You just summed it up. Okay. Now I'm going to let you continue. Oh yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know what? I love, I love words of affirmation, lady. So thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) But it, alcohol basically takes our mind and makes it dumb so that we cannot follow our our normal cues. And the reality is if those aren't quite your people and you're not someone who wants to stay up until, you know, 1130, which I am not either. I want to be in bed. Then it's causing us to abandon ourselves. And 
especially for women and especially for moms and especially for people pleasers, self-abandonment comes becomes almost a badge of honor. And so how do we keep up this ruse that we've signed up for, but to medicate ourselves through it? And as silly as that sounds, that's what we're doing. And so there's a couple of things that I would say, and some are a little more bold and some are a little more tough love. So the bold ones are that if you don't like doing something without alcohol, you can make the choice to say, no, this is not for me. Or you can on the tough love side, just decide to stomach through it. If you are someone who wants to try out what a life without alcohol looks like. And I know that those, this reminds me, this is kind of an aside, but this kind of reminds me, neither of those are savory answers when you're both getting, (laughs) when you're getting started out. And it reminds me of a time that in one of my very first jobs, um, we had gotten gifted this thing of dark chocolate and my boss took a bite of it and apparently it was disgusting. So he leaves (laughs) it on my desks and it's obviously been opened and there's a post-it note that says, this is disgusting and it's crossed out. And then it says, delicious, please try it. And (laughs) that's uh, that I know that that's kind of what it sounds like when I'm saying, Hey, try on sobriety. You either have to, (laughs) you know, face up and tell people you don't want to do some of these things that you've been asked to do, or you have to muscle through it. So keep going with me here. I know that it's kind of a hard sell. But at the end of the day, I, if you are someone who wants to live a better life, you want to feel more authentic, you want to stop self-abandoning, you want to live a healthier, more both physically and emotional life, the fastest way you can get there is through removing alcohol. If you drink at any significant level whatsoever, like I truly promise you, this is stunting your growth physically, emotionally, socially on all levels because it's a cheat code. We're just using it to cheat our way through. We're actually not learning skills and it's a poison. It's a toxin. It's a carcinogen. It's mm-hmm. depleting every single you know cell in your body. So if you're someone who is buying into a more well-focused life, then I want you to be empowered to make one of these choices. And the first choice is to just see. See what it would be like if you weren't diluted with alcohol, if you didn't have that buffer there, if you didn't have that social lubricant. And the reality is that you might Um, struggle with conversation at first, but it's a muscle you flex, just like we were talking about going to the gym. You know, when I take a break from the gym to travel or something, and I go back and try to do a push-up, wow, it's very humbling. I might have to hit my knees, but the more that I do the push-up, the more push-ups I can do full out on my toes. And social interaction is no different. We, I know that you can do all of these things. We, and you, and I, are just out of practice and we've never practiced full out. We've always done the push up on our knees, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is an opportunity for you to do the social push up as it were, full out and see what it feels like and I think that most people will, you know, be humbled at first but then start to be quite impressed with the stamina that they that they grow into. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you went into that dry January kicking and screaming or did you were you already like I got to make a change? Well, I had already done the kicking and screaming the months before. So I finally got to drive. You know, I had tried this moderation thing. And for me, it just didn't work because I am innately an all or nothing person. Fitness is a really great example that I'm either going to the gym five days a week very consistently because I love that consistency. But if I skip a little bit, then and it's all over the board, then it's just not happening. And so for me, I realized that moderation was more trouble than it was worth. Every time I was fighting this mental battle of, when will I drink? What tips and tricks can I use to moderate? What Mm -hmm. if I fail? And it just was exhausting. And so I thought, 
I'm just going to take the question out of the picture and just say no for a month. That sounded very much like a dare campaign, but (laughs) I just, you know, I knew that I just needed to say no for a month. And what went from kicking and screaming quickly, quickly went to me being very stubborn because here's what happened, gals. I was looking around and I had a handful of friends who had said, we're doing dry January too. Mm -hmm. And by the first weekend, they've fallen off the wagon. And Mm. I looked at that and I was like, well, forget that crap. Like, I'm going to stick with this. Like, you're not going to fool me. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep up with this. Like, I just kind of dug my heels in and I was like, I am sticking with this. And so that stubbornness really was what got me through because I wanted to prove to myself and everyone else that I wasn't going to quit. And I think that that, you know, we don't always have that. We don't all have that same resolve, but for me, that's what really, really helped it stick through. And then after that, it was the thought of, I feel really good and I'm not confident that this is as good as I can feel. And it was a curiosity that developed after that. Do you feel like a month was enough or do you think people need longer than a month? Oh, hell no. People need longer than a month for sure. (laughs) Because think about it. This is a habit forming substance. So even if you're not addicted. isn't enough. Now you're you're making it like two months, aren't you? (laughs) Well, ladies, I have to tell you both. This is my new campaign in the world that I've been going on podcasts to promote my book. Mm -hmm. And many of the podcast hosts are sober curious. And so the challenge really is 90 days, ladies. That is really, really, really what I would want someone to stick to. And Mm -hmm. that sounds, I know that sounds intimidating, but when you think about habit formation, it takes 90 days to form a new habit, they say, Mm -hmm. but this is unforming a habit. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's even different and not only unforming a habit, but we are trying to rewind a habit with a substance that even if we're not addicted, it's habit forming and it has infiltrated every cell of your body. And so if you really want to, first of all, feel what it feels like for you to be free of alcohol, you need more than a month. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to start to really experience the other benefits and really kind of get a a stronghold on this lifestyle, I, I prefer really minimum of 60 days would be pushing it. 90 days is where the magic really starts to set in. And I think that anyone who can get to that point really starts to reevaluate, why was I so worried about this? Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking 30 days really isn't enough. You know, they talk about dopamine and getting off of whatever you're addicted to, you know, whether it's video games or whatever, that does take longer than the 30 days. And so that would make sense with alcohol too. Mm. Totally. And it's not only a physical thing, but it's a mental thing that we have all these stories built up about. So you're fighting, yeah, you're fighting a lot of different ingrained behaviors and thoughts when you start to question that relationship with alcohol. But the good news is it's not scary and there's a ton of tools out there to help you. Mm -hmm. And if that is something that anyone's interested in, it's, it's actually really refreshing. And I, I promise you that there is nothing you will miss out on in that 90 days. And in fact, you're probably going to experience life more vividly because you're looking at it through clear eyes. Mm, mm, I like that. I like that. So let's get down to a little uh, pragmatic advice because we Mm -hmm. got a question from Holly and then a a lot of thumbs up support on our Facebook page. And the, the question is about polite ways to say no to a drink. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. what Holly says is there has to be a way to turn down that doesn't come across as talking down to others. 
Yes. So, so mm. you know, it's it's one thing to say, okay, I'm not going to open up that bottle of wine in my kitchen where there's nobody else around. That's that's a different situation. But but being in that group setting and how to, you know, kind of plant your sobriety flag without making other people feel bad about their choices and their actions. Ooh, this is a good one. So thank you, Holly, for that because mm-hmm. so many women who I encounter are very empathic. And so sometimes they will drink when they don't want to just to make the other person feel better or just because they don't know how to say no politely. So Mm. arming yourself with a good script here is a very good tool. Mm. And the first thing that I would offer is that it's all about tone. If you approach something with a positive tone, people are going to take it in a very different way than if you per, if you announce something with the energy of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? <laughs> exactly. So if you are positive about it and you're also very confident and brief with your response, it's rare that you're going to make someone feel bad. It's rare that someone is going to question you or try to peer pressure you. And what's actually even possible is that you might give someone a permission slip to say, oh, hey, I was thinking about that too, or I've been wondering about that. So it can be as simple as this. Oh, hey, I'm not drinking right now, but like, let's say they offered you a drink and you know that they mean cocktail. Oh, hey, I'm not drinking right now, but I love a sparkling water or I'd love a glass of water. Or do you have anything non-alcoholic? And just keeping it short and sweet, because here's the other thing we tend to do when we're bucking the social norm is verbal vomit out a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) and reasons. And you just got to cut yourself off. It has to be short, sweet, confident, and positively focused. And I have never had anyone question my choice, make fun of me, feel um, less than because of that choice. In fact, what I've usually done is welcomed and opened up a conversation of, oh, you know, I've been thinking about doing that too. Mm-hmm. And that's actually really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. So you've worked with active women because you're a trainer. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've worked with active women on sobriety. Mm-hmm. What kind of success stories can you share about their lives, you know, without naming names or that kind of thing? Yeah, of course. Well, I think that, you know, I my book is called Unbottled Potential because I believe that sobriety can be a tool. It can be a foundation for opening you up to your potential in any area of life. So whether, you know, I think that often we think of that as our career and our financial accomplishments, but that could be emotional health, like becoming emotionally more resilient, um, being more tuned in in your romantic relationship or attracting a romantic relationship that's with a high caliber human being, attracting closer friendships, or yes, absolutely, reaching some fitness goals or reaching some professional goals. So the women who I work with tend to be pretty high achievers, go-getters, and they have done things like, you know, just completely turned around their professional career, left a dead-end career that they were pretty high up in Mm -hmm. because they realized that that wasn't for them anymore. Um, I have a lot of women right now who are training for marathons, which is just, Mm. you know, so inspiring to me. And they know that they can't train and have alcohol in their life. And they also want to just be happier. And they, they've communicated to me that they feel that they're stuck in social circles and cycles with alcohol that don't feel good. So we're teaching them to shift the nature of their existing friendships and also attract in new like-minded friends who are a little more wellness and opportunity focused. And wow, I just have, I mean, so many success stories of 
women who just at the end of the day are living more authentically, fulfilling, living the life that is an embodiment of their potential, whatever that means to them. And I think that that's just so cool and special because if we have more women who are showing up powerfully, authentically, wholeheartedly, the world will be a better place, undoubtedly. So in that quest to live more authentically, I know you talk a lot about, or you talk some about meditation and how it can be a tool for sobriety. Uh, you know, many of us know the practice can have positive effects in so many mm-hmm. aspects of our well-being. Can you talk about how meditation can be a tool in sobriety? Because I think it's something that people might feel familiar or, or comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had recently over the past couple of weeks, even a couple of my clients reach out and say, Amanda, I know that you're talking about meditation, but I'm really struggling with it, but I oh. know that it can help. Mm. And so I wonder if too, you know, anyone else is having the same experience where maybe you just feel like you're not good at meditating because <laughs> <laughs> I certainly felt that way before. And the, the thing that I want to turn anyone on to that is really stepping into a meditation practice, especially coupled with sobriety, mm-hmm. is if you have been manually shutting your brain down, which is what we do with alcohol, doing it in analog kind of is going to be a little different and it's going to feel a little confronting and maybe a little strange to sit in meditation at first. And so I'm a real proponent of using guided meditation tools. I love Insight Timer. That's one of my favorite tools mm-hmm. to use and to build your way up. Again, just as if you were you know, training for a marathon, you don't go and try and run the whole race the first time. You do <laughs> little spurts. And so as you're learning to, I act like I've trained for a marathon. I have not, by the way. Um, Poser. <laughs> right. I know. I'm just, I just use analogies about things that I pretend I know about. But I have run a race before and you don't just get up and do couch to 5k, right? That is mm-hmm. not typically um, what we advise. So meditate for a minute. A minute is a meditation. Meditate for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, and build your way up. And there is no right or wrong way to meditate. It is not just you sitting on top of the hill, you know, with some mantra and your your fingers pressed together. It can be, you can do a walking meditation. You can sit and meditate with your eyes open. You can focus on a flame or a water um, ripple, and that can be meditation. There's so many different ways that you can find your way to a still space in your mind. Mm -hmm. And if you have been someone who's been trying to shut out this confronting and intrusive and kind of anxiety ridden thoughts that we all get trapped in sometimes, meditation can be a really powerful tool. And yet it might feel a little wonky at first. So just keep at it is a suggestion that I would have. Mm -hmm. Do you have a time of day you like to meditate? Ooh, Good question. I like to actually, I have two times a day where I like to meditate. Of course, first thing in the morning is great. That's what most experts are going to recommend. But I like to do this thing that I'm sure I picked this phrase up from somewhere else, but I call it second morning. And (laughs) when I hit that kind of afternoon slump, if I know that I can't get myself out of it, I just will have a second morning. And so I will go lay down. I will either do an active meditation, which is where I'll put in headphones and I'll use a meditation that's designed to be a little hypnotic or help you to find rest. Mm -hmm. And I'll try and take a nap. And so I'll meditate with my nap, my uh, like a teeny little cat nap. And if I cannot do that, then I'll, I'll take 
just a moment and shut my eyes and then I will do a meditation and let that be a restart for my day. Mm. And sometimes I'll couple that with my same morning routine, journaling, a little walk around my neighborhood. And I found it to be really rejuvenating to do this kind of second morning thing. That way I'm not trying to just like keep momentum all day. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, that sounds really nice. Now with the first thing in the morning, like how first thing do you just like, do you do it in bed? Do you get up and pee first and then go do it? Do you have your coffee first? <laughs> I'm always like, what do they mean by first thing? Yeah. You know, for years I had, I had a dog for 17 years, so it was always get up and do whatever the dog wants. So now mm-hmm. uh, my routine has changed just a little bit where I will sometimes meditate in bed, but I always try to do it if I can before I look at my screen, which is Mm. going to sound counterintuitive if you are using a meditation app for your phone. But Mm -hmm. I try to muscle through the temptation to tap on that email app or tap on that news app or tap on that social media app and do it while my before the world bombards my brain with Mm -hmm. its priorities. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. what I wanted to hear. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any last advice for maybe elective sobriety or just any any type on that spectrum of, of sobriety? Any uh, first steps you could suggest? Yeah, of course. You know, I know that Celeste was here and she um, she has a more recovery-focused story, which I think is so important. And I also realized that the majority of people who drink actually fall into the gray area that mm-hmm. can be problematic, but not necessarily on the the spectrum of addiction as we know it. And as it's known in this, in this psych, like more psychology world. And so if you're someone like me who falls into that middle kind of gray area, I, I know that it can be easy to brush off the questions or the curiosity that you could be having about sobriety. And if you choose to live an alcohol-free life by choice electively, you are creating a competitive edge in your life that cannot be matched in any area of your life. You are going to be better, healthier, stronger, more creative, more empathetic, more tapped in. And I think that if you have even the tiniest bit of curiosity that you are doing yourself a massive disservice by trying to ignore it. And I really would just urge you to, to take one of those small steps. If you start with 30 that's great. I'd love to see you start with 90, but you're always, if you never do it, you're always going to wonder. So why not just give it a try? Mm, awesome. A fantastic yeah. note to, to leave that on. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us. And we wish you all the best with your book next month. Oh, thank you, ladies. I am so grateful to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you. Somali. What, you going to give it 30 days? You gonna oh, give it- gosh. I, yeah, I want to, but you know, I'm going to a concert and then you've got Christmas and I, I know. Isn't that awful? Excuses. I, those are just excuses. They ones. are. They mm-hmm. totally are. They mm-hmm. totally are. Um, uh, I'm not ready to commit to anything right okay. now. I'm, yeah. I am sober curious for sure. And I, I think I do need to give up alcohol at some point. I'm just not quite sure I'm there yeah. Well, I appreciate your honesty during the conversation. I really I no, I and it's it's sobering. <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. Yeah. 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 And there's no benefit to alcohol except for those other things. Um I'm I'm gonna meditate on it. I'm I you know, I'm gonna meditate <laughs> Just go on it. Just weave all those threads together. I'm gonna meditate you, on it. But yeah. you know, I'm going into the winter time, which is also my like mm. seasonal affective disorder. I mean, mm-hmm. what a good time to try to be you know, clean and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. 
Well, we would love your help in making the Another Mother Runner podcast, this original Friday show, AMR Answers and Many Happy Miles, the best shows they can be by completing a short anonymous survey. The link to this survey is in our show notes. Filling out the survey should take about 10 minutes and your answers will help us determine future topics, guests and suitable sponsors. We really appreciate your time and input and to show our gratitude for completing the survey, you'll receive a 15% discount code to our Mother Runner store once you finish the survey. So thanks in advance for your thoughtful responses. And again, that link to the survey is in the show notes. And what I mean by show notes is those are the words that tell you what an episode is about and has links to the sponsors and advertisers. So if you look for it in there, it'll be a little hyperlink. Click on it. You can take it on your phone or cut and paste, send it to yourself if you want to take it on your computer. Again, Dim and I really thank you so much for your input. Our podcast today was produced in St. Paul, Minnesota by Barry Medore from Fire on the Bluff. Maybe tell us what you had for breakfast so we can be sure your sound is good. Sure. I had very boring breakfast of Raisin Bran and black coffee. <laughs> I love Raisin Bran. Yeah. Oh, man. It's a classic. It I like sometimes. the Kellogg's one because it has sugar on the raisins. The Post one is so... Oh, I, I take the yeah. Post. I like the oh. no sugar on the oh, raisins. Oh, look at that. But okay. I, mm, yeah. And where do you land on that, Celeste? Wait, are you team sugar or team not... I, I, I am definitely team sugar. Yeah. (laughs) Because my coffee's black. (laughs) I got to get it from somewhere. Hey, yeah, we're going to talk about sobriety. You do got to get it somewhere. That's right. Hey, thanks for sticking with us. This is Miles of Books, our bonus monthly segment that's a short chat with Liz Waterstrott, a coach in our Train Like a Mother Club and one of my occasional co-hosts. Hello there, Liz. Hi, Sarah. All right. So the main book that you are talking about today is Winning the Mental Game, the playbook for building championship mindsets by Amber Selking. And you told me there's so much in there, meaning the book. So you got to tell us what you loved about the book, including, of course, because you're Liz, how many pages it is. Well, let's just start right there. I don't think we need to go any further after you hear (laughs) that this book is 202 pages. Oh, oh my gosh. This is like the precious right of (laughs) of Liz's book. Done. (laughs) Sold. Yes. And it's so funny because I hadn't even looked at that until you asked me that question. Uh-huh. So isn't it interesting how that lines up? Hmm. Hmm. wonder yes. why she liked it so much. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's a the formula. No, yes. I loved this book. I know I, I say that a lot. I read a lot of books. It means a lot for me to say I loved this book. It started with one of the first quotes in mm-hmm. the book, which is, I love winning, but what I love even more is the pursuit of excellence that guides us through life in a determined and focused way. I believe we are wired for greatness, all of us. And I believe that greatness begins with how we think. Mm -hmm. There's the mic drop right there. It says, you don't have to be talented. You don't have to be special, have a lot of money or opportunity. We can all be great. And it starts with how we think and how we see ourselves. Mm, Nice, nice, nice. Also that it's not, when you said that it's not about winning, it's the mindset. And I have to say that for me, I find that to be true on the pickleball court. So oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I had to bring Talk it up. to us, Sarah. Talk to us. <laughs> so the league, pickleball league that I started up in 
uh, just resumed after a break for the summer. And there are several gals at the at Pickleball League that seem to get dragged down by negativity or what I would consider mental self-flagellation, yes. meaning that they miss hit the ball or make an unforced error and they just can't shake it off, move on to the next point with a positive outlook, you know, just put the pass behind them. And, oh my gosh, I, I then take that on kind of as my job, like, hey, you know, it's okay, Quinn, you know, l- you know, here we go. We're going to get this one, you know, one point at a time, whatever it is. But if they can't shake it off or I'll see it happen to an opponent. And when I see somebody lose, you know, kind of lose their facade, lose their, start to crack, I'm like, oh, that's it. We're going on a winning streak here. Like, we're just going to make point <laughs> after point after point. And, you know, I, I take, I use it to my advantage, you know, then I'll hit to them or whatever, because I'm like, oh, yeah. So yes, so talk to us about how to win that mental game, how to how to, you know, stay present and make the best possible outcome. Well, it begins as an inside job. So the author s- starts by telling us a little bit about the biology behind the the brain science of mental skills and high performance. But then what I love what she does is she goes right into this system that she has created. And I think this is really important. Because a lot of books out there give you a ton of information, but it doesn't really get pulled together in a way that you can Mm -hmm. walk away and say, well, how do I implement this? Mm -hmm. And what Selking does is she has a system of eight plays of the playbook, the building blocks to a championship mindset. Mm -hmm. And I found this so helpful. It just tidied everything up for me and it just made it really actionable. Yeah, that's I saw that, obviously, as you pointed out that the subtitle is the playbook for building championship mindsets. So she makes very clear from the get go, but also online reviews talked about that the book offers a lot of practical advice. It does. And the layout of the book is such that at the end of every chapter, there is a section where she puts a journal prompt in. And there's plenty of space for you to write in the book, which you know I'm doing anyway. I wrote all <laughs> over this book, but I love that it was right there. I don't have to sit down and type it out or, you know, get out a pen and paper. It's just all right in the book. So it's it's like part information, part journal. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. So Liz, you work with a lot of athletes, including a lot of female athletes. Do you find it's the mental piece of the equation that holds folks back even more so perhaps in physical limitations or training constraints? Absolutely. Mm. Our mind can be our greatest asset and also our biggest obstacle. Mm. And, you know, one thing that Selking goes over again and again is that confidence is a choice. And I think, especially for a lot of women, they're always looking for clues. They're always looking for proof, external validation, when really, like she said, it's an inside job. It's showing up, trusting you've done the preparation trusting you have the skills and then freeing yourself with that choice you've made to be confident to actually go out there and perform. Hmm. Also, hearing you say that, I also wonder if this is a book that parents could use, take away some of the messages to use in raising their children, whatever gender they happen to be, to be confident, strong-minded individuals who can hold their own when they go out into the world. Yes. And don't you think that that is priority number one as a parent is to instill a sense of confidence, not to get them to be the next division one soccer player, not to get them into Princeton, but to get them to be able to carry themselves in the world, confident in who they are and their ability to make good choices and to hold their own. 
I'm nodding so vigorously, my chair is shaking back and forth. <laughs> Be so, careful. So, yeah. How'd you get injured, Sarah? Well, Liz was making this really good point on our bonus segment podcast. <laughs> That's almost as ridiculous as fracturing your ankle on a giant slide in Spokane, Washington. Uh, so, um, all right. So then there is a second book that you kind of, you feel it's a companion piece. And maybe if people kind of want to do an immersion program, into this. And that is on top of your game, mental skills to maximize your athletic performance. And it's by Carrie Cheadle, who is a repeat guest on our Friday podcast. She's been on several times over the years. Um, And this, this is not a new book. It is celebrating its 10 year publication anniversary next month. Yes. Well, Cheadle is a legend in this area. I love her. Mm -hmm. And this was, this is like what I would call the OG for (laughs) mental skills, high performance (laughs) books. Uh, the only reason why I didn't choose it as the top book was because Selking's book is, is a little bit fresher, updated. Uh, you know, I liked how it was laid out a little bit better, but mm-hmm. Cheadle's is just as informative. You'll get a lot from this book. So if you want to just go on the deep dive for really shoring up your mental skills, and it's a great time to do that in the off season, mm-hmm. then I would suggest both books, read them in the month and see what you take away from them. Mm. Oh, Done and done. Okay, Liz, that's only like a five-minute episode. <laughs> well, we could sit here and talk about pickleball if you'd like. <laughs> well, you know, how's, I'd how's like your game? <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> I won't talk. I am holding. I am almost literally holding my tongue because I get some pushback about talking about pickleball too much on the podcast. So I'm just going to say thank you for recommending these two great books and I hope people can take away something for it because I make up for a lot of my lack of physical prowess by a strong mental game so I'm, I'm all for it great 